Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my monthly podcast series, Get a Grip, where I try and unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? Where do we draw the line when it comes to screen time? Do children need both parents? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts will get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main speakers in this area. I've asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Susan Gollenbach is Professor of Family Research, Director of the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge and Professorial Fellow at Newnham College. Her research examines the impact of new family forms on parenting and child development, specifically lesbian mother families, gay father families, single mothers by choice and families created by assisted reproductive technologies, including IVF, donor insemination, egg donation and surrogacy. Her research has not only challenged commonly held assumptions about these families, but also has contested widely held theories of child development by demonstrating that structural aspects of the family, such as number, gender, sexual orientation and genetic relatedness of parents, is less important for children's psychological well-being than the quality of family relationships. In addition to academic papers, she's the author of Parenting, What Really Counts, and co-author of Bottling It Up, Gender Development, growing up in a lesbian family. Her most recent book is Modern Families, Parents and Children in New Family Forms. And welcome to Professor Susan Gollenbach. How are you, Susan? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, it's my great pleasure. And as my husband can tell you over the last two weeks, I've been completely immersed in your fantastic new book, We are family, what really matters for parents and children. I couldn't wait to get started on it. And every time, every chapter, I'd be sort of turning to him and saying, you will never believe this, or this is fascinating. And, you know, one of the things about your book is, and as someone who works in the area of parenting and family life, I was ashamed after I read it that there was so little, you know, I was so ill-informed before about the sort of the, the new family structures and the multiple, multiple ways children come into the world. And it was, it was an eye-opener. So thank you for enlightening me. Uh, and I'd just love you to talk a little bit about your new book and to put it in context, really, in relation to your multiple other books. Yes. Well, firstly, I'm so glad you liked it. It's sort of an odd thing when one writes a book or when I write books, I I never actually think of people reading it. So when people say to me, oh, I've read it. And, you know, what about this in chapter five? And so it's, it's, uh, it's slightly surprising, but also very nice that people are reading it and enjoying it. So that is very nice to know. So how did I get involved in this book. So I've been working in this area of research for 40 years now, looking at the development and well-being of children in new family forms. And most of my research has been published either in academic papers or in academic books. And at the back of my mind for quite a long time, I've thought I would really like to write 
more for a general audience because I would like the findings of this research to be more widely known because people often have preconceived ideas about different kinds of families. And usually the assumption is that the more a family is different from the traditional mum-dad family with biologically related children, the more that this might cause problems for the child. And our research, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, has shown that actually that isn't the case. But I don't think these findings really, you know, have got out to the general public in many ways. So I've been thinking about writing this book. And then I was approached by the then book editor at the Wellcome Trust, who fund much of my research, who suggested this to me as well. So the fact that someone else had come along and said this would be a good idea made me actually do something about it. So that's what happened. It's I wrote a, a more academic book covering very similar ground that came out in 2015. So this book was very different because for a start, it includes lots of stories of people in different kinds of families and their experiences. And that's something I'd never done before. So it was quite a challenge writing about people's stories because you know, usually I do very quantitative research. It's all about numbers and statistics and so on. So the idea of writing a story was quite frightening at the beginning, but then I got to really like it. And it made me think, well, why haven't I done this before? And of course, we have to tell people's stories for people to really understand family types that they may never, you know, have come into contact with. So that's how it happened. It also reviews and summarizes the findings of the research. So, you know, it's not full of academic references and so on, but it does describe the research, what the questions were, what the issues were, what the findings were. And for people who want to find out more about the different family types, then they can go to the academic references that are listed at the end. So that's how it all came about. And it's very helpfully divided into, you know, there, there are chapters on surrogacy, there are chapters on lesbian mothers. So people, you know, you can dip into very relevant chapters, I think. And I absolutely love the stories because you, you got a real insight into the thing that struck me was how resilient these parents were and how enormously resilient their children are. And how proud children who belong to perhaps unfamiliar family forms to many people are are so proud of their origins and how they you know came into the world. That's absolutely right. I think for me, one of the most exciting aspects of writing this book was going back to some of the families who'd taken part in our search, you know, a long time ago, 30 years ago, more, more than that, and just talking to them about what had happened over the years and how their children were doing and hearing, you know, really wonderful stories about family life that were completely in contrast to the predictions that people made about the families. Because certainly in the 70s and 80s, the general view was that children were going to have psychological problems by growing up in these new family forms. And so going back now and and talking to mothers, for example, lesbian mothers about their 35, 40-year-old children and 
how well they were doing. You know, it was just very heartwarming and, and, and wonderful to hear. So that was one of the great pleasures of writing the book. So in general, as an introduction to, to people who are listening to your research, I mean, your work has helped challenge so many prejudice, prejudices and negative assumptions about non-traditional family forms. What were the main prejudices that families have faced and how has your research sort of upturned those? And let's start with, say, single mothers by choice. Okay, actually, could I start with lesbian mothers? Because that's where the research began. And then I'll go on to talk about single mothers by choice. Is that okay? Perfect. It just kind of makes more chronological sense that way. So I became involved in this whole area of research by accident. It was 1976, and I was doing a master's degree in child development at London University. And I happened to pick up a copy of Spare Rib magazine that had an article in it about lesbian mothers losing custody of their children to their former husbands. And at that point, not a single lesbian mother had won custody of her own children when she divorced. And the article called for an independent researcher to volunteer to study the children because in courts of law, judges were saying, well, you know, we just don't know what happens in this situation. And there'd be an expert on behalf of the father, an expert on behalf of the mother, but it was all very speculative and there wasn't any hard data on the development of these children. So I was at the time thinking about a project for my master's degree and this you know, to me seemed a really fascinating topic, um, very relevant to my interest in child development, but also it seemed to be addressing a really important issue. So I then responded to a call for somebody to do this research. So that's how it all began, completely by accident. And in these days, the issues were those that came up in child custody cases. Firstly, that the children would be teased and bullied in school and that they would develop psychological problems as a result. It was also thought that the children wouldn't be clear about their gender. Their gender development would in some way be different. So girls would be less feminine and boys less masculine than girls and boys in families with heterosexual parents. So these were the questions we set out to study in our research. And then as other new family forms came on board, they raised different questions. So when Louise Brown, the first IVF baby was born, although she was the child, the genetic child of both her mom and her dad, this led to firstly an increase in the use of sperm donation to help infertile couples. So these children lacked a genetic link to their father. And then egg donation became possible. So these children lacked a genetic link to their mother. And embryo donation um, was also something that became possible. So in that case, the children were a bit like adopted children because they lacked a genetic link to their mum and their dad. So the questions there were a bit different. Firstly, there was the question of would parents be more distant from or maybe more hostile towards children that they weren't biologically related to? But the other big question, and 
the one that became the more important question was, was the secrecy that tended to surround these reproductive technologies at the time, was that bad for children? And many people began to think that this wasn't a good idea, firstly, because we know that adopted children benefit from information about their adoption, knowing they were adopted, being able to ask questions about their birth family and so on. And we also know from the work of family therapists that secrets within the family can have a negative effect. So that can cause a breakdown in communication between those who know the secret and those who don't. So in this case, the parents and the child. So these were the issues when these new forms of assisted reproduction came along. And then you mentioned single mothers by choice. So they're interesting for a slightly different reason, because there was a lot of research on children in single mother families following divorce or children of single mothers who had become pregnant unintentionally. So these were situations that mothers found themselves in as single parents, but it wasn't a situation they'd chosen to be in. Whereas single mothers by choice are different because these are women who actively did decide to have children in this way. So the assumptions were that the children of single mothers by choice would have psychological problems because we know that there's an increase in problems among children of divorced single mothers and unmarried single mothers. However, these problems don't seem to be to do with just simply having a single mother. It seems to be more to do with the changes in family life that happen after, for example, divorce. So the families experience a drop in income. Mothers often after divorce are in a more vulnerable emotional state themselves. Also, if there has been a lot of conflict between the parents before the divorce, then children have been exposed to a lot of hostility between their parents, which also can have a damaging effect on children. So what's interesting about single mothers by choice is that they didn't have all these experiences. And it allowed us to look at the effects of growing up with a single mother without all these factors that we knew could be problematic for children. So that was the interesting question with single mothers by choice. Our work on gay fathers, again, looks at a slightly different question because although by the time that research started, which was really after the millennium, we knew there was a large body of research showing that children in lesbian mother families were no different from children in heterosexual parent families. But of course, the difference here was that the parents were men rather than women. And it's often thought that men aren't as suited to parenting as women are. So the concerns there were, well, you know, how would men parent? Would they be as nurturing and caring for the children as women? So each new family form that has come along raises different questions about parenting and the effects of different family structures on child development. But Susan, one of the things that seems to come across very clearly, both from that work on, you know, single mothers who decide to have a child or gay father families, is that 
their motivation to have a child and the preparation that goes into that psychologically, financially, emotionally, it pays off because I think I read that it, it, from one of your studies that the, the, among the children whose, whose mothers chose to have that child, you know, that they actually compared quite favorably in terms of outcomes in rela- compared to, you know, the children of married mothers, that they, those children had a greater joy or the mothers had less anger towards their children. And with the gay father families, it seemed to be the case again that the children's the children had great levels of adjustment that in a way they seemed to be flourishing perhaps more than children in what might be termed you know heterosexual couples and nuclear family yes absolutely so i think you've hit the nail on the head there i mean we were our research set out to address the questions that people were raising about these families which all assume negative outcomes And what we found, in fact, was that for some families, we found more positive outcomes for these families compared with, you know, the the groups of more traditional families. And what that really seems to be down to is the fact that these were really wanted children, that the parents had really struggled to have them, either because they'd been through years of infertility and stressful fertility treatment, or because they were faced with very negative attitudes towards them having children. And I think perhaps one reason for these more positive findings, well, the obvious one that, you know, these were really wanted children, and when they eventually arrived, the parents were just overjoyed, really committed to them, you know, very loving, involved parents. But also possibly the ones who weren't quite so committed to having children might have dropped off along the way because, you know, it was a very hard road for many of them. So, but certainly we did find with some of our studies, not just no differences in terms of well-being of children, but actually that they had, you know, more close, involved, loving relationships with their parents and they were doing very well. Also intuitively, you might think that if you're if you're used to or you've come across prejudice on your own journey as a gay father or that you might actually th- that the family unit that's been so hard fought for it becomes very cohesive and you really focus on your family unit in a way that is sort of defensive against the world is is that correct or a false assumption no i think that is right in many cases you know These families have fought so hard to become parents, to form a family that I, you know, they don't take it for granted and they work very hard to protect the children because also, you know, they are aware that depending on where they live, that the children might encounter negative attitudes outside the family. And the families we've spoken to are generally you know, very sensitive to this and really try and protect their children, or at least not so much protect them, but help them to cope with the stigmatization that they may experience in the outside world. And, you know, it we know that there, there might be many circumstances, even in this country, where people are not happy for children to be educated even about new family forms. When you sort of read the headlines and see that kind of controversy, I'm sure it's it affects you that it's upsetting. 
Well, yes. I mean, I think you're referring to the demonstrations. Was it last year? We lost count of time now because of the pandemic. I think it was last year or was it the year before? But anyway, very recently, the demonstrations in the streets outside schools that were teaching children about different types of families. So about, for example, children with lesbian mothers or gay fathers. And there was a huge backlash against that. And it is upsetting because there were children in these schools in these situations. And, you know, the people demonstrating outside didn't seem to have a, you know, care about them and how they might feel about having people with placards shouting, you know, outside the school gates about their families as if they were, you know, somehow lesser families or they should be ashamed of their families. And there was very little discussion of just how cruel this was for children in non-traditional families. And of course, it comes across very strongly from your research that often it's not the problems internally within these family units, it's what children face in the outside world that could potentially impact on their psychological well-being. Exactly. So what our research has shown is, you know, these families are very well-functioning families, but... I mean, I can't, obviously I'm not saying every family is, but they're no more likely to have difficulties. Um, they're no more likely to split up or anything like that than, you know, more traditional families. So the problem isn't inside the family. The problem for these children is how they're treated outside the family. So when they go to school, often they are exposed to a lot of stigmatization, not necessarily in the form of outright bullying in the way they used to be, perhaps, although that does still happen. But it's more subtle. So, for example, children often use the term gay as a pejorative term. So they'll say, you're so gay or that's so gay. And, of course, that's very upsetting for children in same-sex parent families. And also the children say to us, well... We don't see families like ours in the books we read at school or the films we see, the material, the learning materials. Our families don't figure. So that makes us feel bad or it makes us feel invisible. And teachers often are quite insensitive to children being an alternative family form. So so some examples we heard, like the children in lesbian mother families be asked to make Father's Day cards, for example. And so there are still a lot of issues, unfortunately, for children in schools if they don't come from traditional families, which in fact, most children don't these days because, you know, because of divorce and step families and all the rest of it, not just these new family forms that I talk about in the book. So one study, really one of my favourite studies, we carried out with the organisation Stonewall of children's experiences at school, children with same-sex parents. And what I really liked about that study is that the children themselves came up with 10 recommendations about what schools could do better for children whose family is a bit different. And they said things like, you know, use books and teaching materials that have diverse families in them. Don't leave it always up 
to us to explain about our family because that's what was happening. The children were constantly having to explain and they felt that this should be coming from teachers. It shouldn't be on children's shoulders to have to keep doing this. Also, they said, if there's homophobic bullying going on, teachers should clamp down on this immediately the way they do with racist bullying. And the children's experience seemed to me that the teachers weren't quite so quick to act if it was homophobic bullying, partly, possibly, because the teachers hadn't really been trained in how to deal with this issue. So following the study, Stonewall produced a resource pack for teachers that went out to tens of thousands of schools around the country. And so that was a really nice thing to happen that came out of the research. And um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that has had a big impact. And Susan, what year was that? There were children in all years from age four right up to the end of secondary school. So this was a, a qualitative study where researchers went in and, and ran focus groups with children in lots of different schools and lots of different ages around the country. And is that resource pack still relevant? Should Is it something we should flag to schools or is it, you know, Absolutely. is it? Is it yeah. yeah, great. And it's available from Stonewall. So I think probably, certainly the report of the research, which was called Different Families, is available on the Stonewall website. And in terms of the resource packs available from schools, then I'm sure there's still information about that on the Stonewall website. Lovely. Well, we can flag that as well to schools. I want to return to, again, one of the wonderful sort of nuggets that I've taken out of your research, which is that what really matters to children thriving is the quality of the parent-child relationship. And that's something I'm always saying to parents, but I'd love us to just talk a little bit about what that actually looks and feels like. Yes. So the way we do our research is quite in depth. You know, some people, some research happens through questionnaires or surveys and so on of very large samples. Our approach is a bit different because we study generally smaller samples, about 50 families in each family type, but it's very in depth. So we go to their homes Much of our research is longitudinal. So with some studies, you know, one study we're doing at the moment, we're going back to see the families for the seventh time. And we've been following the families from age one up to now they're age 21. So it's doing that kind of longitudinal approach is is something that is very informative because you can see how things that happen early in childhood affect family life later on. But as well as, you know, following families up frequently, we also use very in-depth kinds of assessments with the families. So we use in-depth interviews designed to look at the quality of parenting. So we do we interview the parents, but then the researchers are very highly trained in how to code the information that comes out of the interview, looking at things like warmth, you know, the amount of expressed warmth that parents show towards their children and their the amount perhaps of conflict in the family, what they have conflict about, how it's resolved, how well they openly they communicate with children 
how much they interact with them, all kinds of different things that, you know, how sensitive they are to children's feelings and children's problems. So we look at the quality of that relationship in a very in-depth way and looking at different aspects. We also do a lot of observation assessment. So rather than just simply asking parents to give a lot of detail about the relationship with the child, we also observe them and video them doing different tasks together. And that gives us a different kind of insight into the relationship in terms of, for example, how well they communicate, how much they cooperate with each other over doing a task together and so on. So we use all of this information and questionnaires as well to look at different aspects of quality of relationship. But usually this is defined in terms of positive aspects. So as I say, warm sensitivity, communication, interaction, and also more negative aspects such as arguments and hostility um, and so on. Well, parents, I think, are always taken aback when I talk about the negative impact of family conflict and how parents' ability to resolve conflict is actually quite an important determinant of, you know, children's future mental health, etc. Can we just talk a little bit about, like, try and unpick that for people listening? You know, we're not talking about sort of, you know, being in a huff over who empties the dishwasher. What do you mean by family conflict when we talk about how it might have a negative impact? What is that? What are you sort of concerned about there when you look for it? Yes. So that's a really important point because, you know, most fa- almost all families, if not all families, have conflict at some point. And it's not always a bad thing. In fact, you know, people, academics who study family conflict think it's a good thing that children can experience conflict, for example, between their parents, but also see them make up. So, you know, children learn from that and they learn how to resolve conflict. So that isn't seen as being a bad thing, but the kind of conflict that is seen as being more problematic is if it's very severe. Well, obviously, you know, if it um, reaches the realms of, you know, something more violent or physical, um, then that does have strong links with later problems for children. But also if it's if it's frequent, you know, if parents are constantly rowing, if they're constantly hostile to each other, or even if they're just constantly giving each other the cold shoulder and the silent treatment. So there are different ways of showing hostility between parents. So it's really to do with how severe it is and how frequent it is. And also this issue of, you know, how does it resolve? Because if children see that their parents have a row and then they make up again and everything's fine and that happens not very frequently, that's a very different experience for children than if parents are very hostile to each other and very angry and actually don't make up very well or it takes a very long time and it's happening a lot. So these are the kinds of things that we look for. That's helpful. And I think one of the things, uh, you know, when I tell people I'm doing this interview, um, I've noticed that lots of people ask me 
about this idea, this notion that if a child is raised by same-sex parents, for example, that they're missing out on something. That for some, you know, if they don't have a father in their life, for example, or they don't have a, you know, a mother if they're raised by gay father families, there, there is a great sort of popular idea, a populist idea that they're missing out. And sometimes the parents themselves will ask me, you know, how they do they need to emotionally compensate in some way for this, you know, uh, lack of what they see to be a father figure or a mother figure in their life. And I'd really love your view on that. Yes. Well, I mean, this is something that many parents are worried about. And in fact, you know, a lot of parents bring other people in. So, for example, lesbian mothers will bring in deliberately, you know, perhaps male family members or male friends into their family so that perhaps the child has an opportunity to do things that the mothers might not be so inclined to do um, or enjoy so much themselves. But actually, I mean, our research has shown that children in families without a father do just as well um, as families where there is a father. And the same is true of families without a mother. So families where children are brought up, say, by by two dads and there's no mother. So I think really that, I mean, I understand why parents are concerned about this. And it's certainly, you know, a sort of received idea that is children need to have a parent of each gender. But actually, children learn about gender roles in all kinds of different ways you know they they don't just live within their family they have their wider family for example they go to school they have friends they have the community they watch shows on television and all of these things so you know children can learn about different genders and and what they might like doing or not like doing from in all kinds of ways. And it's not just about having a parent of each gender in the family. So that's certainly what our research has shown. And as I say, many of the families we study, them, I mean, it's not that children are brought up just with mums and they don't have exposure to men. And it's not the case that children are brought up with two dads and don't have exposure to women. So I think, you know, from what we find then that doesn't make a huge difference to children. Although some children, I mean, certainly children of single mothers by choice, do start asking about their dad from a really very young age, you know, some as young as two and a half, three, because they see that other children, like their friends, have got perhaps a mum and a dad, and they want to know about their dad. And that's something that a lot of single mothers by choice have said to us. They weren't expecting to have to address these questions quite so early. But I think now from what we know about children's gender development, we know that actually what parents do doesn't make that much difference. And children learn about gender in all kinds of different ways. And you've mentioned uh, how discussing, disclosing to children, you know, that children are very interested in their own story, in how they come into the world and who, you know, and I've come across parents who've been very, very concerned that they have sort of hidden the fact that, 
you know, they haven't told their child who their father was or who their mother was, et cetera, et cetera. They just haven't disclosed that information. And I think I'm right in saying that your research again and other people's research has shown that children need the truth told in an age-appropriate way and that they will always be, and in fact, not knowing that side of the story can, can be problematic. Yes, that's right. So although the children in our studies are generally doing very well. So we're talking now about children born through egg donation or sperm donation or embryo donation who you know don't have a biological link to one or both parents. Although we found these children to be doing well, we do find that many of them have an interest in finding out more about their donor or their donors. And that seems to be very important to some children. I mean, some are not in the slightest bit interested. It's a bit like adopted children. Some are not the slightest bit interested in finding out about or meeting their birth parents, but many are. And it's the same with these new kinds of assisted reproductive technologies. So the children, many just want information. They want to know, for example, those born through sperm donation want to know what their donor looks like. They want to know maybe what his personality is like. They want to know about his family background and so on. Some actually want to meet the donor as well. So some want more than just information, but they want some kind of contact. This is generally not because they see the donor as their father, but more because they just want to learn more about themselves and it's a way of them becoming more secure in terms of their own identity, knowing who they are, where they came from and so on. So we have found that you know, for, for many young people, this is important. And our research has also shown that those who are told or those whose parents begin to talk to them about their conception when they're young, and by that I mean usually by about age four, certainly before they go to school, that these children have better relationships with their parents as they grow up. And by the, for example, we found in our most recent study that we've published about our longitudinal study of children born through egg donation, sperm donation and surrogacy, that at age 14, those who were told when they were little in their preschool years have better relationships with their mothers. And that came from data we collected from the mothers and, and separately, independently from the children. So it does seem that openness is a good thing. And also it was striking in your new book that those children maybe from a young age have been used to telling other people how special they are, you know, and that they're, they feel special, they feel unique, and they may have had more practice sort of explaining to other people you know, that their family's a little bit different or the way they came into the world was a little bit different. And I think, you know, they do sound terribly proud of that when it's been explained well. Exactly. So I think the problem has been that, you know, this isn't at all surprising, but parents worry about telling their children about their conception. And, you know, they, they worry in particular that the child might not love the non-genetic parent as much if they find out. And I mean, that is a very reasonable and realistic worry. And for this reason, 
parents sometimes just keep putting it off. And then it suddenly becomes too late because they say, well, how can we tell them now? You know, it's just going to be like a bombshell. We should have done this when they were younger. So we do find, though, that the children, when they are told, either are just not interested at all, or as you say, they see it positively. They're curious to find out more. And when they're older, they actually, some of them see it, you know, really as a something that makes them different in a good way. And Susan, obviously, for parents listening who are in that position, the first question is, well, what do we say? How do we know how to say it? Are there any books you'd recommend? You know, are, they to, are there any organizations that can guide them to have that type of conversation? Absolutely. Um, because that is also something parents say to us, we just don't know how to broach this. So yes, there are now lots of books. In, when I started my research, there weren't. But now there are a lot of books for children on how to talk about different types of families and how they were formed. And in fact, at the end of my book, I give a list. It's not an exhaustive list, but there are a lot of nice books there that parents can use for to beginning to talk to their children. Also, in the UK, there is a very excellent organisation called the Donor Conception Network. And they have not just books, but also videos aimed at children of different ages about explaining and talking to children about their conception and all kinds of other resources. So if any parents are listening who are thinking about this issue, I really suggest that they look at the website for Donor Conception Network because they're real experts. That's fantastic. And uh, For anyone listening who's buying Susan's book, it's on page 283, all the resources for children. And I will definitely pull out some of those and highlight to parents in my work as well. So that's fantastic. Susan, tell us a little bit more about the Centre for Family Research where you work at Cambridge. I know that you focus primarily there on new families and the social and cognitive development of the family. But tell us a little bit more about the centre itself. Yes, so the centre has actually been around for a very long time. It was founded in 1966 by Martin Richards. So we celebrated our 50th anniversary a few years ago. And the centre was set up to do research on child development and parenting and family life, but not just theoretical research. It was also set up to do research that addressed current policy issues or current issues in society. So in the early days, the work focused on early mother-child relationships. So how mothers interacted with their infants, what happened when a sibling came along. So that was some of the early work. And then the founder, Martin Richards, went on to study single parent families in the 70s and, and the effects of divorce on children because the divorce rate went up at that time. And then a bit later, the work focused on genetic testing when, when that all became much more common and the effects of that on family relationships and a whole range of other issues. And then Martin... Richards retired in 2005, and I became director of the centre in 2006. So 
We're now organized into two teams and my team looks at the kinds of research we've been talking about today. So looking about at the impact of new emerging family forms on the development of children and their relationships with their parents. And my colleague, Professor Claire Hughes, her team looks more generally at so children's social and emotional development. And she's interested in things like the transition to school and how parents together with schools can enhance children's learning and their relationships at school. So if you just try and very simply categorise our work, the work of my team really looks at the effect of different family structures on children, whereas my colleague Claire Hughes' work looks more on processes within the family that influence children's development and well-being. And I know that obviously the centre is interested in public engagement and hopefully I can help bridge the gap between the centre's work and reaching parents. But what are the ways in which you try and do that as a centre? Yes. um, Well, we've done some very interesting projects. I suppose the ones that have been most fun have been theatre projects. So we worked with Tamasha Theatre Company a few years ago to develop a play about children born through donor conception. So we had a writer, a playwright, come and spend several months with us and learn about our research. And then she wrote a fantastic play, and I wish I could remember the name right now, but it will come back to me. Oh, Half of Me, Half of Me, which was premiered in London and then has been touring around the country and has been shown to schools. So the idea really of this play is a play really for young people. And it's a way of school students learning about these issues and giving that gives them a chance to then discuss different kinds of families and learn about them and talk about their thoughts and feelings about them. So the theatre project was terrific. We have done other things as well, like had sort of session workshops for parents. And one of the projects that I'm most excited about at the moment is that we're working with the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge on an exhibition on the family, which, well, it it won't actually happen now until 2023 because of the pandemic. But that is another way of looking at family relationships that we hope, you know, will appeal and will cause lots of discussion about different ways of forming families and being families and what it is about families that are good for children and what are bad and so on. And Susan, what do you think your next book will be about if you have another one in there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. I don't know. This this book just came out two weeks ago, so I think I need a little <laughs> before before I move on to the next one. But certainly I really loved writing for a more general audience. So I think I feel more attracted by doing that again when the time comes than going back to writing academic books. Thank you. Well, look, it, you're an absolute trailblazer. When I read that book, I was so taken aback by the impact of your work and how it's it has genuinely, you know, transformed 
policy, laws helped, you know, pe- people's families thrive, children thrive. I mean, it, it's, it was unbelievable reading it. And, you know, thank you for all the work that you do do. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you for all these very lovely questions. Thank you so much. Take care, Susan. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get a Grip podcast. Just as a reminder, there are notes that you can actually download following each interview available on my website.